I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm a U.S. soldier. This was a day like any other as we traveled through the dense forest in our convoy, descending a nearby logging road. We had heard rumors about strange creatures in the area, but none of us had ever seen any evidence ourselves so we didn't think much of it. As we approached a quarry, I suddenly caught sight of something extraordinary. Three massive, bipedal hominids covered in black or very dark brown hair from head to foot were standing near the edge of the clearing. The middle creature was the tallest, about seven to eight feet tall, and it was flanked by two slightly shorter ones, standing around six to seven feet tall. I couldn't believe my eyes. The tallest creature stood very still, while the other two seemed to rock side to side, shifting their weight from one foot to the other. They appeared to be observing our convoy with great interest. 
I wasn't the only one who saw these creatures. Sergeant. Jeff Martin, another member of our convoy, had actually witnessed the same three beings about 30 minutes earlier. He had observed them leaving the quarry, and they had moved with a graceful, fluid, glide-like stride, accompanied by exaggerated arm swings. Sergeant. Martin noted how they seemed to cover an impressive amount of distance with just a few steps. We were all astonished by our encounter with these elusive creatures. It was clear that they were intelligent and curious, and they seemed to have a keen interest in our movements. We couldn't help but wonder what they were thinking as they watched us from a distance. As we continued our journey, the sighting left a lasting impression on all of us. We couldn't shake the feeling that we had just witnessed something truly extraordinary, a glimpse into a world that few people ever get the chance to see. It was February 6, 1993, and I decided to head back to the same area where I had encountered something strange before. This time, I was accompanied by Jennifer, Chris, Don, and my girlfriend. We were all curious to see if we could find any evidence of the mysterious creature with amber glowing eyes I had seen previously. We found ourselves near a dump, just east of the Bergsvik Creek fish hatchery. It was said that maybe Bigfoot scooped fish from the hatcheries, which piqued our curiosity even more. The day before, there had been a massive storm with winds reaching up to 80 miles per hour. As a result, we had to drive slowly due to the broken limbs scattered across the road. As dusk approached, we were about 150 yards from the dump when the mysterious creature appeared again. It walked behind our car, and I could see it clearly through the backup lights. The amber glowing eyes were unmistakable. It looked like the same creature I had seen before, as I recognized the gray colors on its body. The next day, we decided to return to the scene with a police officer and his German Shepherd dog, hoping to find some evidence of the creature's presence. However, as soon as we arrived, the dog refused to get out of the truck. There was a strong, dead smell in the air that seemed to frighten the dog. Though our encounter was brief, it left us all with a sense of wonder and excitement. We couldn't help but think about the possibility of a mysterious creature, like Bigfoot, roaming the woods in our area. Our experience served as a reminder that there are still many unknowns in this world, and sometimes, the most unexpected moments can turn into unforgettable adventures. It was May 18, 1993, when I, Mark Port, stumbled upon mysterious tracks once again near the Green Peter Dam, close to Lebanon, Oregon. The tracks measured approximately 14 by 5 inches, and I couldn't help but feel a sense of excitement and curiosity as I examined them. I recalled a similar experience I had while hunting near John Day, Oregon, back in 1990 and 1993. I remembered being deep in the woods, surrounded by the sounds of nature, when I suddenly heard something unusual. It was a strange noise, like the rubbing of sticks back and forth. The peculiar thing was that it sounded like several individuals were doing it. The noise was persistent and eerie, sending a chill down my spine. As I stood by the Green Peter Dam, reflecting on those past experiences, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something out there something that had left those tracks and made those mysterious sounds. I felt a mixture of intrigue and fear, wondering what kind of creature could be responsible for the traces I had discovered. Determined to learn more, I decided to investigate further. I ventured deeper into the woods, following the trail of tracks as best as I could. The forest was dense, and the deeper I went, the more mysterious it felt. The sounds of the woods seemed to grow quieter as I approached the source of the tracks. Then, as I stepped over a fallen log, I heard it again, the sound of sticks rubbing together. My heart raced as I realized that whatever had made those tracks and those sounds was nearby. I cautiously moved forward, scanning the trees and underbrush for any sign of movement. As the sound grew louder, I knew I was getting closer to the source. I held my breath hoping to catch a glimpse of the creature responsible for the tracks and noises. But just as I was about to lay eyes on it, 
The sound abruptly stopped, and the forest fell silent. Frustrated and unnerved, I decided it was time to head back. I had come close to discovering the truth, but it seemed the mysterious creature wanted to remain hidden. My name is Alex, and I'm an experienced park ranger with years of service under my belt. I never could have imagined the terrifying ordeal that awaited me when I agreed to lead a team of scientists and archaeologists on an expedition to study an ancient Native American settlement in a remote, uncharted area of the national park. As we delved deeper into the ruins, the atmosphere grew heavy with a palpable sense of history. The settlement was remarkably well-preserved, a testament to the ingenuity of the people who had once called it home. But as we continued our exploration, we stumbled upon a horrifying scene, the bodies of over 50 people, all brutally slaughtered. It soon became apparent that the settlement had been ravaged by a long dormant supernatural creature, a wendigo that killed people on sight. The mere mention of its name sent shivers down our spines, and we knew that we had to find a way to stop the creature before it could wreak further havoc. As we searched for answers, we found a series of runes etched into the walls of a hidden cave. The symbols told the story of the Wendigo, its origins, and most importantly, the method to banish it from this world. With no time to lose, we worked together to decipher the runes and perform the ritual needed to rid the world of the Wendigo. The air crackled with energy as we recited the ancient incantation, and the Wendigo let out a blood-curdling scream that echoed throughout the settlement. As the creature writhed in agony, it finally vanished, banished from this realm by the power of the ancient magic. But as we stood among the ruins, our relief was tempered by the knowledge that we were too late to save the lives of those who had fallen victim to the Wendigo's wrath. The settlement, once a thriving community, now stood as a haunting testament to the dark forces that had brought about its demise. As we returned to the park, the weight of our discovery weighed heavily upon us. The ancient settlement and the tragic fate of its inhabitants would remain a somber reminder of the mysteries that lay hidden within the depths of the national park, and the darkness that sometimes lurked just beneath the surface of our world. It happened five years ago. The official ruling was that his death was caused by a rogue bear attack. You know, when a bear gets a little too used to eating human food, so it doesn't feel threatened anymore and attacks a human. They all know it wasn't a bear though, bears don't leave wounds like that, and they sure as hell don't pose the body 70 feet up in a dead tree. Yeah, I said pose, but before I get into the details, I should explain a bit about myself. Now, I'm a park ranger in a very popular national park in the northern United States. I don't want to say exactly which one, although I doubt I'll keep my job for much longer. Anyway, that's partially why I'm posting this, I need to tell somebody else about this story, and like I said, my colleagues don't want to talk about it. Being a park ranger has given me a lot of weird stories, and everybody is used to weird happening in the woods, but this was on a completely different level. For days, we had been getting reports from campers and hikers about strange noises coming from a section of deep backcountry forests. Growls, yipping, even human-sounding voices. Equipment and food had been going missing from backcountry campgrounds. All pretty typical stuff that can be explained away pretty easily. Many animals thieve food, make weird noises, and even the human voices can be explained by the sound that foxes and mountain lions make at night. But we needed to investigate either way because an animal that is conditioned to human food is dangerous. So we sent our veteran backcountry ranger, Craig McKay. This guy had been working there for 30 years, was an expert outdoorsman, and was my mentor when I first started. As always, he jumped into the task, always eager to go into the backcountry, even though he was getting a little older. I'll pause now and let Craig tell the rest of the story. Well, his journal will have to tell the rest of the story because he isn't alive to tell it. I found his journal, a flashlight in his backpack, inside a small cave near the location of his body a couple of days after he didn't return, and we had sent out a search party to find him. 
I haven't shared this journal with anyone, not even the other rangers, until now. I'm not exactly sure why I've kept it hidden, other than that the truth seems so messed up and unreal, I didn't want it to damage people's memory of Craig. I'm not even sure if I believe it myself. Everything I'm going to read to you he had written down over the two days he was out on his backcountry excursion. October 21st, 2011, Day 1. Today was a long day, and I can't say that I've made much progress. I've hiked about 15 miles over the course of the day, starting down in the gully where the reports first started and ending up at my current camp, which is on the southwest side of Bald Knob. I figure it's a good enough place to keep an eye out for anything coming and going through the valley. Earlier, I found some tracks in the ground in the area, and as close as I can tell, they're from a mountain goat. Odd that it would travel alone, but maybe it was separated from its herd or dying. It had an odd gait. I followed them for a while, but they didn't lead anywhere, so I abandoned them. Near the tracks was a pervasive smell of death and I'm assuming a goat got separated and died. Tomorrow I'm planning to hike across the valley to the mountain on the opposite side and see if I can't catch a track of whatever is harassing the campers. October 22, 2011, morning of day 2, quick note while I eat breakfast. Last night was a long night, one of the longest I've had in a while. About an hour after going to bed, I heard light steps near the campsite. I grabbed the rifle and went out to investigate. No lights, so my eyes could stay adjusted to the dark. The second I stepped out of my tent, the noise stopped. Whatever was there knew that I was watching. I made a couple of circles around the campsite and found nothing, but I could feel something watching me from the shadows. As I got back into my tent, I thought I saw a tall silhouette in the clearing, but I must have just been seeing things. It was too skinny to be a bear, and nothing else is that tall. The strong scent of death was still present and kept me wary all night. Today's mission has changed. I just got a radio call that a couple of hikers haven't returned when they were supposed to last night and might be lost. I'm still crossing the valley today, but this time to reach where the hikers were supposed to be. Last October 22, 2011, night of day 2. Stopped for the night in the valley, cooking dinner now. Chicken and rice again. Dead tired, and I'm getting too old for this. No progress on the hikers, and still smells like death, though much stronger than before. I've just heard some sounds that sound like they could be voices. I can't get the radio to work in this valley. Looks like I'm not getting dinner tonight after all. Going to take a light pack and see if I can follow these voices. October 22, 2011, night of day 2, second entry scribbled. Dear God, what did I find? Barely made it to this cave. I can hear it scratching and gurgling outside. Going to try and block the entrance and see if I could stay here overnight. I found out where the smell of death came from. Got the cave entrance cracked, covered with a large rock and some brush. It will have to do. The beast is still outside clawing at the crack in the rock. Don't think I'll sleep tonight anyway, not after what I saw. I might as well record this because these might be my last words. For the first time in my career, I'm scared. I don't even know what I saw. It was huge, about seven and a half feet tall, and possibly fast. Smells like putrid meat. Earlier, when I had left camp, the voices outside became more and more persistent. They were definitely human voices. I followed them until I reached the clearing, and suddenly everything went silent. No voices, no hikers. It sounded like the forest itself was holding its breath. I heard a slight sound behind me before I was thrown off my feet, knocked the wind out of me. My rifle was ripped from my hand before I could even use it. I was picked up by my leg and thrown across the clearing. I could feel its claws digging like knives into my muscle. The thing dragged me upright against the tree, and I could feel its breath on my neck, breathing out a putrid smell. I could feel the blood pouring from my leg and soaking into my pants. The agonizing pain from the wound left me trembling. I could feel the weight of its body as it pushed up against me, ready to go in for the kill. 
I heard the smack of its mouth opening and prepared myself to die when a crash in the distance distracted the beast long enough for me to make a break for it. I ran for my life and I didn't look back but knew it wasn't far behind me. About 20 feet away was the entry to this cave that I was able to squeeze into. It's still outside, I could hear it shuffling around trying to get into the crack and I could hear the heavy breathing, the sucking gasping sound coming from its mouth. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Dear God, please help me out of this. I want to see my wife again, I want to see my kids again. My nose is filled with the putrid smell of impending death. If I make it through the night, my plan is to wait until first light and try to escape back to the ranger station. Those are the last words we have by Craig McKay. When he never reported back, we assumed his radio had gone out of range, but after a couple of days, we sent a search party to find him. Well, we found him alright. From the tracks, it looks like Craig left the cave early the next day. He makes it about 50 feet from the cave entrance when a second set of tracks catches up to him, goat tracks more specifically, a goat with only two legs. The gate matches something that would be a bit more than 7 feet, like Craig described in his journal. What we found of Craig was dragged 70 feet up a nearby tree and torn to pieces. He was hardly recognizable. His torso was jammed onto a short branch on the tree that kept him hanging there, his arms splayed out to his sides. His innards were strewn around the base of the tree. The jagged shadow remains of his leg bones stuck out of the early snowfall that had come to the mountains this year. Nothing appeared eaten or missing but not a single piece of him was left untouched by the monster. It took the rest of the day and a special rope team to get him down. The missing hikers were never found. Those scraps of clothing matching what they were wearing have been found in the same valley where Craig died. Like I said earlier, the official story is a bear attack. Bears don't do this. We don't know what did this. We've rerouted trails to stay away from this area but we still hear reports of humans sending voices coming from the woods. And we've had some more hikers than normal go missing in the last five years. They are found, but it's always too late. Some are arranged like Craig was, broken warnings to other hikers who dare intrude upon the beast's forest. Some are just never seen again. My name is John a seasoned park ranger assigned to mentor a rookie named Ethan on his first assignment. We ventured deep into the remote backcountry of the vast national park, eager to pass on my knowledge and experience. Little did I know, our routine patrol would quickly become a harrowing fight for survival. We stumbled upon a series of gruesome animal killings that defied any logical explanation. The carcasses were left in a manner that suggested no known predator was responsible. As we investigated further, we discovered the existence of a pack of supernatural predators that could blend into the shadows, moving silently and unseen. These creatures were unlike anything we'd ever encountered, and their mere presence sent a chill down our spines. Ethan and I knew we had to overcome our fears and rely on our skills to outwit these elusive predators. Our priority was to alert the public to the danger lurking within the park's borders, but we knew we needed to act fast. We devised a plan to lure the creatures into a trap, using our knowledge of the terrain and animal behavior to our advantage. Unfortunately, our plan did not go as smoothly as we had hoped. As we managed to ensnare the predators in our carefully laid traps, Ethan became separated from me. I heard him cry out, and my heart sank as I realized that my young protege had fallen victim to the creatures we were trying to stop. Despite the pain and guilt that weighed heavily upon me, I pressed on, capturing the remaining predators. As I stood there, mourning the loss of Ethan, a government helicopter suddenly arrived. Before I could react, a group of armed agents emerged and locked me in, taking the captured predators with them. I demanded answers, but my pleas fell on deaf ears. The helicopter took off leaving me with a sinking feeling that I would never learn the truth about the creatures or the government's involvement. After that day, no one ever saw or heard from me again. My disappearance became one of the many mysteries that haunted the park, 
a chilling reminder of the unknown dangers lurking in the shadows. Two years ago, I found myself on an elk hunting trip with three of my buddies. We had set up camp near Ukiah, Oregon, or at least that's what I think it was. The days were spent scouting for elk, and the evenings were filled with laughter, storytelling, and of course, drinking screwdrivers around the campfire. One particular night, as we sat around the fire, we were all in high spirits, sharing our adventures from the day. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a loud, undulating scream echoed through the forest, cutting through our laughter and chilling us to the bone. It was unlike anything any of us had ever heard before, and it sent a wave of fear through the camp. Instinctively, we all jumped up and ran for our guns, our hearts pounding in our chests. The adrenaline coursed through our veins as we frantically scanned the dark woods surrounding the camp, trying to pinpoint the source of the terrifying sound. As we stood there, weapons at the ready, we caught a glimpse of a large, shadowy figure moving swiftly through the trees. The sheer size and speed of the creature was enough to make us believe that it was a Sasquatch, a creature we had all heard stories about but never truly believed in until that moment. Just as quickly as it had appeared, the creature vanished into the darkness, leaving us all standing there, dumbfounded and shaken. We gathered around the campfire once again, our previous mirth replaced by a sense of unease. We spent the rest of the night discussing the incident, trying to rationalize what we had experienced. Over time, the memory of that night has faded, but the feeling of fear and awe that the scream evokes still lingers. We've shared our story with others, some of whom believe us, while others dismiss it as a product of our overactive imaginations and too many screwdrivers. I'll never forget the night of September 9, 2015. It was around 11.40 pm. And I was driving up Route 43 towards the peaks of Otter. I was just passing Turkey Mountain Road when something strange caught my eye. My headlights hit a figure that seemed out of place. It wasn't until I got closer that I realized what it was. I knew what I saw was going to sound crazy, but I had to call Bedford County Dispatch. I told them that I saw a Bigfoot with a baby. The dispatcher was understandably confused and asked me to repeat myself. I insisted that I wasn't drinking and that I saw what I saw. Two days had passed since the sighting, and I felt like I had to share what I witnessed. When I went back in daylight, I saw footprints that were larger than anything I could make. The creature's stride was longer than anything I had ever seen. The footprints were bigger than my two feet put together, end to end, and I wear a size 8 shoe. The creature was holding its baby just like a human would, and the baby was looking right at me. I later described the baby as looking just like Chewbacca from Star Wars. The dispatcher asked me if they had received any other calls like mine before, but he had never heard anything like it. A deputy checked out the area and didn't find anything. I know they were not bears. I can't explain what I saw, but I know what I saw. The memory of that night will stay with me forever. I have heard many rumors of a monstrous creature born in the mountains, about 15 miles away from our city. The people living there are said to be deeply superstitious and almost untouched by civilization. The creature, which was born about two weeks ago, has caused a great deal of terror and dread among the mountaineers. They believe that the devil has appeared among them, in the form of the monster that was born in their midst. Recently, rumors of the creature have reached our city, and those who have dared to visit it describe it as being somewhat larger than an average newborn, covered in short, black hair, and dark in color, despite having a white father and mother. From either side of its head grow short horns, and it has a long tail that resembles a cloven hoof. To the mountaineers who have seen it, it is the very picture of the devil. There are many stories about the incidents surrounding the creature's birth, but one stands out. It is said that the father of the creature had some religious beliefs, which he tried to impose on his wife, who did not agree with him. 
she declared that she would rather see the devil than have a cross always before her eyes. Shortly after this, she gave birth to the monstrous creature. In terror, the father summoned several neighbors, and one of them, more brave than the rest, offered to kill the creature by bleeding it to death. As he took out his knife, the creature raised itself, got down from the bed, and walked across the room, addressing the would-be executioner in terrible language and threatening him with dire consequences if he attempted to harm it. It then declared that it would live for seven days, and having revealed its purpose for coming into the world, it would then die. As strange as it may sound, this story has many believers, and few dare to go near the little cabin in the mountain where the poor mother of the miserable creature lives. The creature lived for seven days and died on the last Monday, the eighth day, without ever speaking again. Its birth and death have filled the mountaineers with such uneasiness that they shun the cabin and its inhabitants. I sat on a wooden barstool behind the register in the nastiest gas station I've seen before or since. It was my third night in a row on the graveyard shift, despite my constant pleas for daylight hours. At night, the place became purgatory. No matter how hard you'd scrub or how many times you'd mop, a thick film of filth remained on every surface. I would go hours without seeing a single car drive past, I often questioned if the rapture happened and I was the only one left. We were a stone's throw from another 24-hour gas station franchise that was cleaner, properly lit, and had an equipment update within the last decade. Needless to say, I had a lot of downtime. It was half past midnight, I had six and a half hours to kill. I was reading from the first volume of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and doing my best not to look at the clock. As I would soon learn, I was being irresponsibly unaware of what was going on around me. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a brown wood panel station wagon pull up to a pump. Two men exited the car and walked inside. One looked older, he was wearing a leather jacket the same shade of brown as his vehicle. The younger guy was close to my age, he wore a faded Carhartt coat and work boots. Both were covered in a layer of dirt or dust that suggested recent manual labor. These were country gentlemen. I greeted them and asked what I could help them with. They told me they're not interested in buying anything but they had to stop by and make sure everything was okay here. I was appreciative, albeit visibly confused. The younger man asked me, did you know you're being watched? As he subtly gestured outside. Sure enough, I saw the dark outline of a man standing completely motionless near a streetlight. None of his features were visible but I could tell he was staring directly at us. The older man said they had been driving by 45 minutes earlier and almost hit him as he was standing in the middle of the road. He theorized the man was possibly on drugs. They decided to take the long way home that night to see if the guy was still hanging around. Mind you, this was 45 minutes after they almost ran the guy over. Had he been watching me that entire time? I looked outside again to find he hadn't moved a muscle. He was positioned on the border of the streetlight's illumination, I noticed his jaw was moving like he was saying something. I asked the younger man to lock the deadbolt on the front door, literally my only line of defense in this situation. They both agreed to wait with me in the store while I contacted police. Until that moment, I maintained composure, trying not to make it obvious that I felt extremely vulnerable. Here I was, at the mercy of three complete strangers, hoping the two I had in front of me were genuinely there to help. When the dispatch operator confirmed they had units on the way, I felt safe enough to end the call. I thanked the two men profusely and they walked out the door. After pausing for a moment, they turned around and came back inside. The younger one plainly stated, lock the door, he's coming this way. Then immediately ducks back out the door so I can lock myself in. As I flipped the deadbolt into position, I could see the dark figure moving toward the building at an intention pace, making it across the parking lot in about 10 strides. He tried opening the door but found it wouldn't budge. He asked the older man, where did the girl go? Who then tried to buy me some time by saying I was in the bathroom and I would be back in a minute. 
So this man, this possible assailant, walks around the corner towards the bathroom door and disappears behind the building. And of course we didn't have cameras outside to keep employees safe on the job, the only three working security feeds happened to all be trained exclusively on where the cashier would stand. It felt accusatory. It was at this point when real fear began to set in and I lost control of my composure. This unidentified man who had apparently been watching me for close to an hour was now laying in wait for me to exit the bathroom. I started to hyperventilate his thoughts of what his motivation could be. Had he been watching me before tonight? Was my store chosen at random or did this guy come here because he saw a small female at the register? Was he actually on drugs? Or was he just mentally unstable enough for it to appear that way? Did he have a weapon on him? Or did he plan to use his bare hands for whatever he was going to do? I peeked out the window and saw the two gentlemen exchanging glances and muted discussion of how to proceed from there. Thankfully, a local police SUV tore down the street and into the parking lot of the building next door, turning on his flashers and quickly coming to a stop. As soon as I was absolutely sure the man was gone, I sat on the curb outside sucking every last drop of nicotine out of my cigarette I held in a trembling hand. As if I telepathically summoned her, my phone rings with a call from my best friend. She said she was thinking about me and thought she would call to say what's up since she knew I would be bored. All I could respond with was, get here. Now. 20 minutes later all my roommates showed up in a pickup truck and stayed with me long enough to feel comfortable again. As anticlimactic as this ended, it could have definitely been a lot worse. I could have been robbed, or ped, or murdered. Or all three. All because I wasn't paying attention. I'll never know the true will of that dark figure under the streetlight, and maybe that's for the best. I don't think I could easily get past knowing what could have lied in store for me. And I wish I could have gotten one of the gentleman's contact information so I could send a beef jerky bouquet or something manly that says, thank you. Living on New River Mountain in this county, I have been much wrought up by a phenomenon which has been witnessed there at intervals for several months but only recently assumed startling proportions. In May, reports were circulated of a mysterious rain of tiny stones, which apparently came out of nowhere. At first, these reports attracted little attention, but as time passed, they became general. In May, several stones fell in a clearing near the cabin of Cy Henley, who lives halfway up the north slope of the mountain. These were jagged pieces of sandstone the size of a walnut. I remember Henley cursing the person supposed to have thrown the stones. One night in June, I was wakened by sounds on the roof like the falling of hail. As I had a little garden patch, I was uneasy as to the effect of the hail. Examination in the morning developed that the hail was composed of tiny stones. I spoke of this to other mountaineers, and it was learned that stones had fallen at other points on the mountain. In July, a clearing almost on top of the mountain was visited by a desultory rain of stones, many of them striking buildings with loud noise and bounding off. A peculiarity of this shower was the presence of several pebbles, which are as rare on that mountain as icicles in August. The superstition of the mountaineers was aroused, and some strange theories were advanced. The reports grew as they went. A newspaper in a neighboring county recently printed a story that showers of stones were constant on the mountains, and that business was suspended on account of the excited condition of the populace. The fact is that the populace consists of not more than a dozen families scattered over the mountains, and there never was any business to suspend. The most peculiar manifestations occurred on the farm of Ellison Fosman, a justice of the peace living on the south slope. Several stones had fallen here at intervals of a day or so, and Ed Meekers, a school teacher of the vicinity, went to Fosman's to investigate. A stone was heard to fall in the yard, and after some search, we found it. It was almost sunk beneath the hard surface of the ground and was smooth, black, and of a perfectly oval shape, and about the size of a robin's egg. Meekers said it was warm when he touched it. Just as he stooped, Another stone struck him with a sharp blow in the small of the back. 
This stone was scarcely larger than a lima bean and about the same shape, although not so regular. A stone about as large as a man's fist and resembling brown hematite iron or fell on the roof of Addison Butt's house, two miles from Fosman's, and, bounding off, fell into a barrel of water standing at the corner of the house. It sizzled like hot iron and sent up a little cloud of steam. This stone is undoubted of meteoric origin, as some of the others may be, but the average falling stone is an irregular, jagged bit of sandstone, and small clouds of coarse sand accompany some of the stones. Twigs are broken off trees, shingles split, and corn broken down. Probably a bushel of these stones have fallen, all in all, in the clearings. If, as seems probable, the phenomenon has been general over the mountain, several tons must have fallen. In the valley of New River Mountain, the wildest reports receive credence, and the Reverend John Justin, a local Baptist exhorter, is using them with startling effect at nightly revival meetings at the Little Log Schoolhouse. It was 1970 and my entire family was driving home from Arizona to Washington. My two brothers and older sister were asleep in the back seat of our scout. I was three sleeping on my mother's lap in the front seat. My dad always prefers the scenic route so we were driving through the painted desert Arizona. It was about an hour or so before dawn. My dad says it caught his eye on the right side of the road, just out of nowhere. One minute there was no light and the next it was there softly glowing. As they approached this light, they could see it was a man dressed in a bright, shiny metal suit. It reminded him of armor. He said he seemed to be almost seven feet tall. The figure stretched out its arm and motioned for them to come forward. He doesn't remember being afraid, just in awe. My mom confirms everything he said up to that point. They lost a couple of hours and don't remember driving out of there. My dad says he came to pump gas. It stayed with him all his life. He was a great artist and drew the scene hundreds of times over the years. This happened when I was younger, probably around eight, after I had experienced what I know now as a near-death experience. I was with my grandmother who was still very healthy for a 76-year-old woman. We went trekking across our rural property with a picnic basket in tow, just looking to sit down with our dog and have a nice time. Normal grandparent stuff. We ended up crossing the creek, it was dry at the time, to go to the back pasture. Nearby, probably 50 yards away, was our cedar tree. We sat down and started eating when our dog started acting crazy. This dog, bless her soul, was an angel. Did not act like a dog most of the time. She never barked, never jumped, and always acted politely. She went nuts, running in circles around us, growling and barking. My grandmother got concerned so she put our picnic stuff back in the basket and tried to calm her down. I was sitting a few feet away, scared because my dog was growling. I will admit my memory gets fuzzy around here, but I remember seeing a large gray creature step out of the creek slash tree line we had previously walked through. My grandma scooped me up and booked it out of there, our dog running with us. I am 90% sure she ran to the cedar tree. She always talks about it being her favorite tree, and about how protective it is. The tree was a lot closer than her house, which was roughly a half mile away at this point. I just know our dog calmed down and I was happier. No, I don't live in the southwest, I live in the south central slash eastern Arkansas, close to Louisiana. So, I have no idea what it could be. I was driving out in the country in a back road town of Willis, Michigan. Then something quite startling ran in front of my car. It literally was running so fast not only was it a two-footed seven to nine-foot blur. It was weird how its legs literally went from the foot back to a joint. Like an ankle. Then forwards like a joint like our knee. Then it went back to the hip. It made it go so fast almost literally went in front of my back road cruising 25 to 35 miles per hour. I watched, 
But as fast as it was, I made its full body out. Its head had pointy like upward ears like a Doberman pincher almost. Then its body was like a person except the shoulders were strong like a very built man. Its head had remained to point straight ahead like our heads do. But its body was longer because of how tall it was. It has been running like a blurry werewolf. And since it was a full moon, I thought werewolf. But it was running so fast because it had a different shape than the people. I wish I could draw. I will never forget what it looked like. It went in front of my car running into a small back road cemetery. It had to have been a werewolf. I'm not sure what it really was but as soon as I saw it my first instinct was to pray and go to the nearest church as fast as possible. So I did. While saying the Lord's Prayer I trembled and my body was in fear of the unknown. I stayed at a church and slept in the parking lot the entire night. I thought that would be crazy if werewolves had been truly really actually physically real. But I went back later to find out the cemetery was called the Child's Cemetery and the name was from the child's family. Most of the tombs had been children of the Masonic Templars for the symbols all had distinct characteristic traits. And the actual percentage of the graves had actually been from children. All had died between 1927 to 1932. I don't know what it was from. Smallpox maybe. But that was the first, but not the last, time. I was with this girl crazy. I thought she was for talking to herself. But we saw two of them running in a field a week later. I thought of shapeshifters and things of nature. I don't know what made it come to mind. But whatever the case it was scary. This just happened a few hours ago. I have called and reported it to the police and I am home safely but guess I am still in shock. Could do with putting it down and writing to process it and figured this is as good a place as any to share what happened. I finished work early today and so decided to go out for a run. I set out around 4.30 and decided my usual routes which cross many roads will not be very practical and so I took an alternate route along a canal towpath and some pathways through woods that I knew would be less busy. Everything was going well, I was pushing myself steady until I got to a pathway on the way back around 6 km into the route. It is a long straight path with a canal on the left side and on their right there is wasteland where some factories used to be but have mostly been demolished. It has been left abandoned for as long as I can remember and is overgrown with trees and weeds but there are the odd bits of an old factory that for some reason weren't fully demolished. As I got level with one part of the factory which still had some old metal fire escape steps attached to it I noticed a rough looking guy sat on the wall with his legs hanging down. He jumped to his feet as he saw me coming and shouted something but I couldn't make it out. As I came level to where he was I heard him say wait there, can you help me find my phone? He said this while he was running down the steps and so I stopped as I got level with where the bottom of the steps was meaning we were standing just a few feet apart but with a fence in between us. It was a really old iron fence with vertical metal bars that have spikes at the top like you sometimes see around churches and things. He asked me if I would help him find his phone again saying he had dropped it somewhere nearby and asked if I could ring his number so he could listen for it. I felt I couldn't exactly refuse as my phone was strapped to my arm so I said he could tell me the number and I took my phone off my arm and unlocked it. He blurted out a phone number but said it far too fast and it didn't begin with 07 which made me start to feel like something wasn't right. Although I was beginning to suspect at this point I wasn't really worried, I am in pretty good shape, had a big size and weight advantage over him plus there was a fence between us. He didn't seem in very good physical shape and seemed like he might be homeless, I figured if he was trying to mug me for my phone his only chance would be if he pulled a knife so I made sure to stay a good distance away from the fence and kept my eye on where his hands were. So I told him I didn't catch any of the numbers because he said it too quickly and he came out with another number this time it did have 07 at the beginning. I entered 7 numbers and then he started to look around and saying I can hear it come and help me look as he looked around at the ground. I was about to say that I hadn't even finished dialing when a much larger black guy appeared from behind a section of wall to my right, 
He was also really scruffy looking and from the look of his eyes, it seemed like he was on drugs. He came out saying he could hear the phone ringing over towards him and beckoned me to come through a gap in the fence and help look. The white guy then said it is ringing yeah? And I told him it was even though I still hadn't dialed the last digits and now I was sure they were trying to lure me to come over to that side of the fence. After two or three times of them both beckoning me to come and help, always insisting they could hear the ring I heard the black guy say he's not going to fall for it he said it in a hushed way as if he thought I wouldn't hear but with it being out in the middle of nowhere I could clearly understand what he said. The white guy then started acting quite aggressive and punched a tree telling me he needed the phone badly and how his whole life was on the phone telling me to come and help them look for it. While he was punching the tree and ranting the black guy had taken a few steps away to the right meaning I couldn't keep my eyes on both at the same time, it was after 5pm by this point and had gotten dark all of a sudden which made the whole thing even more unsettling. I noticed there was a gap in the fence where some of the bars had been removed right where the black guy was heading and I decided at that point to get the hell out of there and made a run for it. Neither of them said anything as I ran away which makes me sure that they had malicious intentions. If they genuinely lost their phone and needed help I would expect them to shout where are you going? Or something to try and get me to come back but they didn't shout anything. After sprinting for a good 20 to 30 seconds I turned to see if they were chasing me, they were both stood on the path around where the gap in the fence had been but were not chasing me, they were just standing there watching me run away. I continued running away but kept looking back every few seconds until I was out of sight, it was at this point I got off the canal path and onto the roads. The person I spoke to on the phone to report it took my details and the descriptions but seemed to think it wasn't anything worth worrying about but said it will be investigated. The whole incident has left me a bit unnerved and I am pretty sure I won't be jogging that route alone anytime soon. Sir, my name is Megan. I am forwarding a summary of an experience that I and a friend had in August 2010. My friend and associate Kira and I traveled from Columbus, Ohio to Ravenswood, West Virginia on business. While we were there, I wanted to make a side trip to Gallipolis, Ohio to visit relatives I had not seen for quite a while. After our meeting and presentation, we drove onto Ohio Route 7 and traveled south along the Ohio River towards Gallipolis. We had a nice, though brief, visit with my relatives. Around 6 p.m., we left their home and drove a few miles north on Red. 7 to check into a hotel near the local airport. Around 7.30 p.m., we decided to get dinner and found a quiet restaurant so we could eat and work. After we finished, Kira needed to go to the store and pick up a few items that she forgot to pack. We headed to a Walmart that was nearby the restaurant. After we finished shopping, we were walking to the car when I noticed a woman running through the parking lot. When she reached her car, she looked back in the direction of the store and then hurriedly got into the car. I quickly looked in the same direction and saw what looked like a large bird flying above the roof of the store. It was difficult to see but when it swooped down where the parking lot lights would shine off of it. It looked like it was either oily or had shiny leather-like skin. Whatever it was, it had a wide wingspan. I would guess it reached 8 to 10 feet across. It circled above the store for about a minute then just disappeared. We were both somewhat shocked at what we witnessed but figured that it was just a huge bird. Since it was dark, I figured we had misjudged what it really was. We drove back to the hotel and decided to call it a night so we could get an early start on the drive home in the morning. I got ready for bed but thought I'd watch some television first. By this time it was around 10pm or so. I must have dozed off fairly quickly because the next thing I remember is frantic knocking on my door. I stumbled out of bed and checked who it was. It was Kira and she was obviously upset. She rushed into my room and said it's here. What are you talking about? A little bit perturbed that she woke me up. She said that she was laying on the bed reading when she heard something in the hallway. She got out of bed, walked to the door, and listened to what she thought were scratching sounds. After a few minutes, the sound stopped, 
So she went back to bed. Not long after she lay down she heard more scratching sounds but, from outside her window. Again she got up and peeked through the curtains. This time, something looked back at her. Our rooms were on the second floor in the back section of the hotel and both looked out onto a small parking lot and a large field beyond that. She could see, what she described as, a bald ugly man with wings who was looking directly at her with large bulging eyes that lit up bright red. It was there for only a few seconds. It then spread its wings while running at the same time toward the end of the parking lot and lifted off the ground like a bird. You're kidding, right? I muttered to her. Meg, I swear to God, that thing is out there and it knows we saw it. I knew the only way I was going to get some sleep was to allow Kira to stay in my room. The next morning we woke early, checked out, and drove back to Columbus. Kira didn't mention the incident from the previous night during the ride. In fact, she has still never said anything else about it. We continue to be good friends and have a very good working relationship. But, I got curious. I had never heard about the Mothman or any of the tales associated with it. I grew up in Texas and had only lived in Ohio for a few years. I moved into my mom's house after she had passed away. Her relatives lived throughout Ohio but I had never been told any of the stories. This is the reason I am writing to you. We were near Point Pleasant, West Virginia when we had this encounter. Do you think that it is possible that this was a Mothman? I read some of your posts recently and I'm starting to believe that Kira actually saw something supernatural. In light of the prophecies of danger that this thing is supposed to warn people about, Kira has had some bad luck and tragedy since that day. Her husband suddenly left her, she had a fire in her house and she severely injured her leg in a fall. Could this be connected? I personally don't believe in predictions, either good or bad. But I will admit that these have been strange times since we witnessed whatever. I have been visited by otherworldly beings since 1974. I've had missing time many times over the past 48 years, and have been abducted countless times. I did have one experience in 1999 that I had reoccurring dreams, a night that happened at my home in northern Wisconsin. I remember being taken from my bed, being led into my living room. I remember seeing things around me. I was shown a young girl 12 years old or so. I remember knowing that I was the child's father. I remember being so angry, that I was used over years to create this abomination. I had, for as long as I can remember, maybe 25 years, kept a gun in my bed, under my pillow. I had it in my hand. I remember being so angry that I was able to pull free, and I shot and killed the girl. I am a law enforcement officer. Since that day, I put it away, and I have trouble handling it. After shooting the girl, I remember being punished. I have had lumps in my arms that hurt and remain today. Each time that they come, they find different ways to make me suffer. All this time I hesitate to tell anyone else about any of my sightings, but I did report my story to MUFON. They called me and made me feel like a criminal. I have heard the story of the Quaker man who left Philadelphia to start a new life in the mountains of Pennsylvania. He was a man of strong faith, and after purchasing a large lot in Cook Township, he found employment at the Old South Mountain Iron Works. The land was perfect for him, with a stream full of brook trout, plentiful timber, and lots of open space to raise a family. He soon met a young woman and fell deeply in love with her. They were married by the local justice of the peace, despite the fact that she was not of the same religious faith as he was. However, they were happy together, and she soon became pregnant. In the final month of her pregnancy, the young wife began to experience bouts of anger and intense pain. The doctor could not diagnose the cause of her malady and ordered her to complete bed rest. The Quaker had a horrible dream that the devil had come to visit their home while he was at work. He was sure that his wife was possessed by a demonic being and that he needed to purge her of this evil. For ten days straight, he knelt by her bedside, invoking prayers and charms, 
much to the chagrin of his wife. However, his wife soon became disgusted by the fuss her husband was making. In a fit of rage, she grabbed a small wooden cross and flung it out of the window. She declared that there was no God and that the devil was only a creation of a feeble mind. That very night, the Quaker's wife went into labor. She told in agony for the entire night and into the early morning. A midwife was quickly summoned for the delivery. Soon after daybreak, the child started its way into the world. As the midwife coaxed the new mother to push, it soon became apparent that this child was unlike any she had ever witnessed. The newborn boy resembled a beast, not a human. It was alive and breathing but did not cry or make any sound. It was gray in color and had more scales than skin. It had a long tail and small horn buds above its pointed ears. There were claws for hands and hooves for feet. It also emitted a foul, lingering stench. This was the embodiment of Mephistopheles. The Quaker was horrified and could not believe that this was his child. He refused to even touch it. The midwife, who had seen many things in her time, was shocked and did not know what to do. The child lived for only a few minutes before passing away. The Quaker's wife died soon after giving birth. The Quaker was left alone with his thoughts and his beliefs. He eventually left the mountains and returned to Philadelphia, where he tried to reconcile his faith with the terrible thing that had happened to him. The story of the Quaker and his wife has been passed down through generations. Some say it was a curse, others say it was a punishment for the wife's blasphemy. But the truth remains a mystery, lost to time and to the mountains of Pennsylvania. Okay, this happened a couple of years ago, before we turned 18 and before uni started so we had a lot of spare time and nowhere to spend it so my friends and I would often just walk round our town at night talking about random stuff. On the night in question it was just me and one friend, and we were just walking without really paying attention to where we were going since we were in pretty deep conversation. We found ourselves walking towards an entrance to a footpath that's behind an estate. There's a fork in the path and going left will eventually take you to the high street and a train station, going right will take you to some fields behind a cemetery. We went right which sounds like a dumb idea but it made sense at the time because you could get into the cemetery through the fields and then onto the estate where we lived by coming out of the cemetery. Initially I didn't even want to go down the path in the first place, I'm scared of the dark and generally would rather not walk through a graveyard and a bunch of creepy forest slash paths at night. My friend reassured me though and after all it was the quickest way home. About 5 minutes in, the path leads through a small wooded area and after that there is the gate that opens into the cemetery. It's really dark in this part, except for some distant lights from houses allowing you to see a little bit in front of you. That's when we saw a figure in the distance walking towards us. From what I could make out it just looked like one guy, probably a similar age to us because teens would often use this path to get from one estate to the other. I quietly told my friend that and he agreed. We weren't worried because while there are some bad kids in our area, people don't really give you any trouble when they're on their own. As the person walked closer to us and us to them I realized it was not a teenager, but a really tall man. Trying to calm myself, I remembered a tall guy I see a lot walking his dog, a big Alsatian, yes it must be him. I scanned the area for his dog but I saw nothing, however the man was holding something long in his hand. I thought it was a lead for his dog but it wasn't flexible and in the dark and in my paranoid state I thought it looked like the handle of an axe, or a spade. My friend and I hadn't said a word since the man got close but I just knew he was thinking the exact same thing as me. I didn't want the man to notice that I was staring at him so I just looked down and walked as fast as I could without running. Thankfully, the gate was right there and once we got into the cemetery we felt safe. Once we got out into the open we started talking about what we saw and my friend agreed it looked like an axe or really big stick and said I was expecting to get a blow to the head as soon as we got near him. I babbled a bit, sorry but I certainly stay away from dark paths now. Hello all. 
I wanted to share these two stories I have from my childhood that have always stuck with me and still creep me out to this day. Story 1, this story is short but makes me feel uneasy, nonetheless. I was in kindergarten as Mrs. Quigley's class, I loved her, when she got a call from the office that someone was there to pick me up. I think this was before the time of like emergency contact forms with designated people to sign you out. Because this happened so long ago, I can't remember if there was a name given or not. But I do remember being 5 years old and not feeling right. I told Mrs. Quigley I didn't know that person and didn't want to go with them. She didn't make me and I rode the bus home as usual that day. I can't help but think that situation was something bad because I don't remember it ever being a problem that I didn't get picked up that day, like it wasn't planned and it wasn't inconvenient that I didn't go with them. Story 2, my cousin and I were playing outside in a wooded area near her house and this wooded area was also next to a road. I just remember we were playing in there then this pickup truck stopped on the road next to us. I don't remember what he said, I just remember taking off and my cousin tripping over a branch and falling. I was too scared to help her. Back when I was younger, around 12 to 13, my three friends and I, also the same age, had a fort right at the tree line by some woods near our neighborhood. Right next to the tree line was a series of fields used for sports, so technically our fort was on that property and not the woods. Separating the woods from the fields was a large chain-link fence. One day after a large storm, one of the trees from our fort was knocked over, leaning against the fence, naturally as kids, we thought that was awesome, except for ruining part of the fort. We all climbed up on the tree, sat on it and whatnot. After some time we were just sitting there having a conversation when I noticed one of my friends who was not on the tree was looking kind of past us, on the other side of the fence, uh guys he said in a shaky tone. We all turn around and on the other side of the fence about 20 feet away was an old man, he was dressed in tattered clothes, including a newsboy hat. He looked to be in his mid-50s to 60s. He stood there smiling at us, I definitely sensed some malicious intent with him which is creepy in itself but the part that gets me the most was how long he must have been there watching us, easily 15 to 20 minutes before my friend noticed. In what seemed like forever, none of us spoke and all we could do was stare back at him. My adrenaline kicked in and my reaction was to just run away, where my friends also followed. After a few minutes or so we gained the courage to go back and when we did he was gone. It kind of scared us and we really never went back to that fort, now the fence is replaced and the fort is gone but my friends and I will never forget that creepy man.